0: This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC and Jay-Z Microphones. So get
1: ready to rock. The first thing that you do is you have a fairly involved conversation with the band. You know, what kind of music do they emulate or what kind of record do they aspire to? Do they have any examples of music that they, where they think sonically their album would be in kinship with that kind of music? Some bands operate within parameters that they've defined. And it's good to know those at the outset.
0: Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac. The speed to create, the capacity to dream. Now find out how awesome your studio can be at OWC. This episode is sponsored by Jay-Z Microphones with a unique Golden Drop capsule design. The Vintage Series V67 and V11 microphones offer Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a rich, warm sound to your studio with crisp clarity and detail that will make you wish that you had discovered these mics a whole lot sooner. Go to jzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below and use the limited time coupon ROCKS. Right now to get fifty percent off their vintage series microphones. Hey, Rockstars, It's your host, Lyd Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Steve Albini, a musician, engineer, and owner of Electrical Audio in Chicago. Steve is known for his love of analog tape and extensive discography that includes artists like Nirvana, The Pixies, The Breeders, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, The Stooges, Cheap Trick and P.J. Harvey, to name just a few of more than a thousand records that he has made spanning the past 40 years. Steve has also been a previous guest on the podcast when we talked about his start in recording and creating electrical audio, so please check out that episode, rsr seventy eight. He also makes time to speak publicly about music and recording and teaches as well through Mix with the Masters. So on today's episode, I thought I would focus more on mixing and see what we can learn about mixing records on analog tape through consoles and also how we might inform the decisions we make when mixing digitally in the computer as well or not. So please welcome Steve Albini back to Recording Studio Rockstar. Steve, are you ready to rock,
1: dude? I am. Dude, it
0: is a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you for taking time out to hang with us.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so you had mentioned that you're joining us from Studio A there at Electrical Audio, and yep. I thought maybe we'd just jump right in and ask you to kind of describe what Studio A is all about. Um, my understanding is that uh, at least I recall working with you a bunch in there, and I got the impression that might be a place you spend a lot of time mixing.
1: Studio A is more comprehensive studio than Studio B in that it has a larger console and uh, more physical space for uh, setup and recording. You know, it's it was intended to be the more comprehensive studio, uh, but we were concerned about pricing out our core clientele who are independent and underground musicians, and we so we wanted to make sure we had a less expensive studio available for those people because those were that, you know, there are some sessions that don't require a a big elaborate control room setup and don't require a lot of physical space for the band, you know, just recording a three piece rock band and doing a simple mix without a a lot of overdubs and and such, you don't need a big comprehensive studio. It's nice when, when you have excess capacity, but uh, we felt, awkward making all of our clients pay for that when yeah. it wasn't necessary for a lot of the things. So that, so that's why we have a two-tiered studio. We have Studio B, which is um, slightly more modest, but still acoustically very nice. Uh, and because it was less expensive to build out and, and equip, we could charge less money for it. Studio A is intended to be the sort of no-holds-barred, completely comprehensive studio that you would expect uh, if you were, you know, Coming to the best studio in the room or in the building.
0: Um, how many years has it been since you built electrical? And ha- and in that time, have you considered actually adding more studio space?
1: We can't add any more space in the building, really. Um, there's a, put, there would be a potential to build a like a mix only or transfer and mix only suite, um, but that, uh, but there's we get. Frankly, very little of that business. Almost, almost, almost all of the mixing only work is done by people in, uh, either just using their computer systems, or in little suites that they've built for themselves that have their choice outboard and their choice, um, you know, fancy mixing console and and so people who do exclusively mixing don't tend to go to other studios to do it. Um, so it's unlikely that we would that there would be enough work to justify building a mixing-only suite. We do get a lot of transfer and archive kind of work where somebody has an analog archive and they want to do some more modern production on an, on a hi- historical tape or whatever. And so that they want us to make a digital session of that tape so that they can take it elsewhere and fiddle around with it. And that does come up significantly more often. So it might be you know it's conceivable we could build a suite to just handle those kinds of transfer duties because at the moment we do have to tie up an entire control room to just to transfer tapes for people and that ends up being you know awkward for scheduling um but we didn't we don't really have any more physical space in the building to to make another production studio and like another full production studio um and i found that having two studios available is pretty much what is needed to keep the business afloat. If we had a third studio, there would be additional overhead. And I don't know that we could generate enough business to justify it, you know? Yeah. Well, um, we, started, we started building the studio in December of 95, um, and the, and Studio B opened in April of 97. So there was a, a little over a year uh, uh, in, build out for the, to get the first studio running. Then Studio A opened about a year, a year and a half after that. So that opened in November of 98. Um, And we've been going with, the, you know, sort of full Monty ever since.
0: Yeah, no doubt. You guys are very, very busy and you've, um, going through your discography. I had a lot of fun actually um, on Wikipedia, just copying and pasting, records that you have done into YouTube and sort of building a playlist. And I only got to about a hundred and I, and I just had to just like, you know, pick and choose random ones, but well, it that, was really fun to be like able to do. like an
1: extremely masochistic exercise. Yeah, it was a lot I of mean, fun just the though. fact that I've, just the fact that I've worked on a record uh, really doesn't imply that you're going to like it.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I, I think I liked everything I heard. I, I'm not sure wow. I heard anything I didn't like. Um, but you know, it was interesting too because I definitely heard some um, some you know musical themes going on there. Uh, a lot of high energy bands, a lot of distorted guitars, a lot of powerful drums, um, mixed in with other stuff over the years. And then it was interesting too to go through the t- discography and see that I think it was the um, you know two thousand. I I didn't write it down, but it was somewhere around like 2004 or something. Um, you know, you, all of a sudden the, the, the years were just loaded up, which I think was, you know, kind of um, it was once the new electrical was built, it seemed like mm-hmm. you were making a lot of records at that time.
1: Yeah. I mean, not having to go elsewhere to make a record means that you can schedule your time more efficiently. And, the, and and also the cost of making records at Electrical was uh, incrementally less yeah. than making records elsewhere. So um, people, you know, some people who couldn't afford to make records with me previously, now they could. So um, there was a, and, and also there's just a sort of a logistical or practical matter, which is that in order to pay for uh, an enterprise like this, you, you're obliged to work all the time or work as much as people will allow right, you.
0: Right.
1: Uh, and so, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm simply not in a position to turn down work really.
0: Have you ever, um, sort of tallied up how many countries you've made records in?
1: No, but it's a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know you uh, travel I,
1: a lot. Like it's it's easier for me to name the countries where I have or the places where I have not made records.
0: All right, right. Um, fair enough. Is there a country that, if you could make a record next, you'd love to try that?
1: I would love to make. I would love to go uh, to to go to Africa and see what kind of music we're not hearing percolate through the popular uh, filters. You know, I'd love to see what African urban music sounds like right now. For example, I'd love to hear what some of the, you know, what the the variations of indigenous music in uh, all over Africa have come up with after having integrated some aspects of technology that have percolated into um, that part of the world. I, I would, I'm deadly curious to hear what that sort of music sounds like.
0: All uh, right. Well, I, I hope that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love I mean, to hear what you do with it.
1: In a lot of urban places, like in, in places where there are big cities, um, there tends to be a lot more connectivity and the music scenes tend to follow similar profiles sort of worldwide. Like, you know, if you're in Japan or if you're in Australia or if you're in California or if you're in New York, there is a kind of a commonality to the behavior of of the musicians. And and I think that, you know, that's because they're all somewhat informed by each other. And so that's why I'm curious about places where um, there are, Regions where there's been much less penetration of the sort of the sort of um, homogenization of of culture.
0: Um, well, let me bring us back to Chicago for a moment and and kind of get focused on mixing. Um, can you describe to us what you know what comprises studio a there? what what are mm-hmm. what are you surrounded by?
1: The mixing desk is a neotech. Console that was custom made for us. It's based on an Elite console, which was their top range console at the time. Um, so this would have been the late '90s uh, when we commissioned it. The engineer that uh, the owner engineer of the Neotech company was a guy named Craig Connolly, and I think he was an absolute genius. Um, I really like the sound quality of all of the con- all of his desks that I've worked on, uh, and the the Elite is really really uh, a well above standard in terms of noise and distortion performance like you can have a lot of channels open on the desk and you can have a lot of features on the channels engaged and the noise floor is vanishingly low Uh, and that's extremely hard to do with a large system you know this console is 48 channel inputs plus eight stereo groups plus another 96 secondary inputs uh, and so, I mean, there are many, many, many inputs to the desk that are all avenues for noise to be created, whether it's noise leaking into the desk or the amplifiers themselves amplifying internal noise or, um, you know, uh, power supply noise and, and hum being amplified by all of these amplifying stages and inducing noise in adjacent channels and stuff. There's just so many ways for a system that large to go wrong that, I, you know, I'm shocked um, whenever I'm working on a session that I have so that I can have so many channels open on a, on a big session, for example, and the, the console noise is just vanishingly low. Nice. It, that's really great. It's really great not to because so much of your mixing energy as an engineer is just busy work, just, you know, like keeping the noise at bay, like making channels, you know, making channels that aren't active at the moment go away. Um, You know, uh, if the, if something makes an entrance at a certain point, but there's anticipatory noise prior to that, you, you know, you sort of spoil the effect of the entrance. And so you, you know, a lot of your mixing energy is spent like keeping the, the unwanted parts of the re- of the session from intruding on the on the desired parts, and having a very quiet console means both that you can hear those things clearly. You can hear when there's uh, something that you have to deal with, but also you're not going to accidentally be making a noisier session than you wanted to.
0: Um, do you? I might be jumping the gun here, but do you find that? there's an advantage to digital in having uh, an easier time controlling noise like that? Or do you find the opposite that people tend to be sloppy about their, their entries and exit exits to sound?
1: Well, it, it, I don't, I don't work digitally. I do. All of my sessions are on analog tape, but um, I do have some hybrid sessions come in where someone has started a session digitally. And then we carry on with an analog master from here, that sort of thing. Um, and I also you know the other, all the other engineers in the studio all work digitally, um, either exclusively or primarily. So I am seeing digital sessions underway all the time. And one thing is absolutely true, and that's that from a recording standpoint, that is from the standbook of practice, from the standard of uh, practices, as a recording engineer, digital engineers are dramatically sloppier than analog engineers are. <laughs> like, um, you know, uh. Timing and, uh, you know, extraneous noises and uh, incorrect, uh, you know, stuff that's set incorrectly or whatever, all of that stuff it just is taken as a not, not a serious problem in a digital session because there's, there's always the, the concept that, that you have infinite undoing and infinite redoing and you can manipulate the signal so dramatically after it's been recorded. The, the task of recording has been treated as kind of an unimportant detail in the in the session. Most of the session's energy is spent editing and manipulating sounds after they've been recorded. Uh, so digital sessions are dramatically sloppier in all of those details. Like um, you know, there will be a number of microphones put up in the hope that one of them sounds good. <laughs> they'll just all be recorded simultaneously. And then the the presumption is that you have infinite time after the fact to weed through them and figure out what you want to use. In an analog session, you don't have those luxuries. You basically have to choose what you want to record and then record it. So um, there is a there's a sort of a, a structural difference to an analog session and a digital session. And yeah. because my skills were all developed in the analog domain, um, I I remain committed to a fairly. Um, careful approach to recording that is uh, from my perspective things should sound pretty much the way you want them to sound before you record them and that you know that's top to bottom not I'm not just talking about you know the specific tone of the guitar I'm talking about you know how many bars before the verse comes in or how many iterations of the guitar solo there are and um, whether or not there is a backing vocal those are the kinds of decisions that should be made prior to coming into the studio. And uh, in the analog domain, you know, you still have the flexibility of changing your mind and, and redoing things. Uh, it's it's just a much less efficient process to change your mind in, this, in the analog world than it is in the digital world. In the digital world, you know, things change all, sometimes unwittingly or by accident, stuff will change. Uh, and you know the fact that you can undo things means that you can probably get back to where you were before it was changed. In in the analog world, nothing changes unless you willfully change it, unless you patch something in, or record over something, or you know, unless you make an an overt act. Whatever you've recorded is going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that to to be honest, that's the the part of it that is the the most important to me. That's the the reason that I've committed to analog recording is that uh, I know that whatever happens in the session, you can put the tape on the shelf and in a hundred years, come back and resurrect the session exactly as it was in a digital session. There really isn't any, there there really isn't any parallel to that. There's, there's no, no synonym for having a master tape on the box in the box on a shelf. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's the thing that has prevented me from committing to digital digital recording is just knowing that there's no way to be sure that what I'm doing will be historically preserved.
0: Yeah. Well, we did talk about that on the previous episode too, and I've heard you talk about that before. I mean, you know, um, as an archival format, analog, you know, like you say, 100 years from now, you can still pull it onto, pull it off the shelf, put it on the machine, and you'll be able to play it back. Digital, mm-hmm. I mean, in my own personal career span, I've already struggled with pulling up digital sessions that I worked on in the past and to continue working on them. So that's a very valid point. And I know yeah. at the at the risk of of trying to focus on um the mixing side of things, you know, you've mm-hmm. already demonstrated that um probably the answer to many of my mixing questions is going to be get it right when you're recording it <laughs> and performing it. <laughs> but I'll I'll take that I'll take that that um, shot for the team here and, and see if I can ask away anyway. Um, well,
1: mixing, us- is, mixing is a specific task. You know, in in most of the sessions that I do, mixing is an extension of the recording process. That is, while you're recording, you have a balance up on the desk that you're listening to. And so you're familiarizing yourself with the relationships of all the elements and making decisions along the way about whether things stay or go. Um and then when the time when time comes to mixing, you know, in an ideal scenario, it's a fairly simple process of making adjustments from what you have been listening to all along. Um, but there are specific things, and also, and and very occasionally, um, sessions will, the recording aspect of a session will be separated by time from the mixing aspect. So you'll do a session, uh, say in September and the band will brew on it for a while, uh, and then they'll make some editorial decisions on that session, maybe add some overdubs a few months later, then brew on that for a while, and then six months later come in to mix it. Like that That's a not uncommon template. So in, in those cases, you have to sort of re-educate yourself about the session um, when the mixing time comes. Um, so it's not that dissimilar to having something come in over the transom where somebody says, will you mix this for me? I recorded it and it sounds bad.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I remember about working with you is watching you, um, A, sharpen a lot of pencils, and B, take a lot of notes during the session. And I do think that um, that's one of the beauties of working on tape and working with uh, a track sheet is you actually have this physical piece of paper you're taking notes on and it's evolving and it's with you through the session, hopefully. Um, And in the digital world... You know, you can maybe drop some comments in somewhere, but, you know, and keep some other forms around. But sometimes those get disconnected from the session itself.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the one of the things that I consider when I'm when I'm working on a session is that the track sheet is going to be the roadmap for whoever works on this session after I'm dead. And the band has suddenly had a revival, Um, you know, and that that sounds like it would be a rare occurrence. But when it does happen, if there's if there's no information, then that person is going to be at a loss. But if, yeah. the, if it's all documented carefully, then that person is going to have a much easier time of things.
0: Well, can you tell us about your tape machines in Studio A?
1: Sure. The Multitrack is a Studer A820. We standardized on those machines. I bought my first one in 1993, I think, 92. Um, they are uh, the absolute pinnacle of the uh, analog art. There, uh, there are a lot of functions on the machine that are computer-assisted, um, using small CPUs inside the the machine. Things like tape alignment calibration, um, storing of presets, that sort of stuff. Uh, but by and large, it's a you know, as far as the audio is concerned, and as far as the tape transport is concerned. It's an old school electromechanical and analog audio machine that just has a computer has computer aided um, sort of maintenance chores or nuisance chores. Uh, So it's it's very easy to work on. The tape transport is extremely well engineered. It's extremely gentle on the tape. uh, And very stable over time. Speed, stability and asthma stability are fantastic. Um, The. The audio circuits are really, really elegant. There's a a timing network that is built into the recording function of every analog machine such that when you punch in or punch out in a a recording session, you need to defend against the creation of little gaps or pops or Mm -hmm. uh, sort of double recording effects. And this machine has... By far the best compensation for that those effects. It, it's it, essentially seamless. You can you can kind of punch in and punch out uh, with no regard to what you're dropping in or out of, and the machine will solve all the problems for you. Uh, it's super great after having to, having worked on MCI machines and Ampex machines and Otari machines, where you know you often have to anticipate the behavior of the machine when you're doing the the, the punching just so that you don't create an awkward glitch in the middle of a lead vocal or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that aspect of these machines is really great. Um, it can also store several calibrations. So you can have the machine aligned for a particular session. Like let's say you have a very quiet session where you don't have a, a, a lot of dynamic range, but you wanna minimize the noise. You can calibrate the machine to be operating at very high level um and uh with uh, biased for absolutely minimum noise and you can and that session will be conducted optimally for that music and then if you have another session where you need a lot of headroom because there's a a wide dynamic range um you know and it and it might be uh, a session that has a lot of bass or treble energy one or the other and so you might need to adjust the bias to accommodate that to avoid to give yourself a little extra headroom and avoid um, saturation or overbias effects. Uh, And you can store that as a preset. Um, If you have a, a supplied tape from a client that is an obsolete tape type, for example, you can calibrate the machine for that tape type and then store that as a preset. So when you come back to that session, you can recall that preset and the machine is already ready to go and you don't have to recalibrate the machine manually. There's a lot of really nice little details about the way that machine and the interface were designed um that just make little tasks in the studio go so much smoother
0: uh that's super cool do you actually i mean my first thought is you know you're coming up to a quiet song you're on this reel of tape would you switch the alignment mid reel of tape for one song to fit on there or is that more like a per reel approach
1: typically it's a per session approach but um for example if uh, i did a um I did a session uh, with Joanna Newsom where the basic recording was going to be just her and her harp singing, and she was gonna be singing and playing harp simultaneously. There's not a lot of bass energy in a harp. Her voice, she sings in a very bright, very high register. So that session, uh, I calibrated the machine to operate at 30 inches a second and uh, biased for absolutely minimum noise, and I wasn't so concerned about headroom, so I op- used a slightly elevated operating level. Um, then uh, the next record I did after that was an album for the band Neurosis, and their music is extremely heavy, and uh, it, there's a lot of percussion in it, and there's a very, very wide dynamic range. They, they go from very quiet to extremely full bore loud in the span of you know a minute, It'll go from whisper quiet to like, you know, a, a full wind blowing at you kind of deal. So that session, I calibrated the machine for 15 inches a second, and I didn't use an elevated operating level because I wanted to preserve headroom for the big loud bits and, and avoid saturation or compression effects. Uh, and I had to slightly underbias the the machine because the... Their drummer has an extremely aggressive approach to his cymbals, and it's very easy to drive the the tape into overbias from the high frequency energy of the cymbals. Uh, so th- that's a scenario where two different sessions, on s- two subsequent sessions, required me to set the machine up in completely different ways. Um, and if I had to go back and forth between those sessions, I could have had stored each of them as a preset and then bounced back and forth, sort of willy nilly. But that's one of the one of the things that I like about analog systems is that you can tailor the behavior of the system uh, to the session that you're working on at the moment. So if you're doing a quiet, pretty acoustic session that doesn't have a lot of bass energy, you set the machine up in one way. If you're doing a heavy, widely dynamic record, then you'd set the machine up in another way. And in each case, you've optimized the the sort of parametric conditions in the machine so that you're flattering the music you're recording at the moment.
0: This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix masterbundle.com to get started for free now, or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, what is a process for you, um, you know, sort of briefly of knowing, I mean, you work with so many artists and you do so many sessions. Um, what's the process for you of knowing what to expect on a session so that you can make some decisions like that and be prepared?
1: Well, the the first thing that you do is when the, you know, on the beginning of the first day you have a fairly involved conversation with the band and you know, what kind of music are they, or, you know, what kind of music do they emulate or what kind of record do they aspire to? Do they have any examples of music that they think um, where they think sonically that they think their album would be in kinship with that kind of music? Is there, you know, are there rules about the band? Like, you know, we always have the, this guitar on the right. We always have this guitar on the left. You know, um, there, you know, I always double my lead vocals, things like that. There are, some bands operate within parameters that they've defined. And it's good to know those at the outset, you know, um, we,
0: do you, oh, sorry. Do you have conversations like that? Um, if somebody sends you something to mix, it's the same sort of conversation.
1: Well, it's extremely rare that I mix somebody else's recordings. Like generally speaking, these conversations happen at the beginning of a recording session. Uh, and then the, you know, over time, I at, in, over time and in interacting with the band, I intuit or I learn um, the unspoken parts of their aesthetic. And I start to become sympathetic myself to what they like and don't like. And then I can start to anticipate their expectations. But um, For me, uh, in mixing specifically, I'm kind of crippled if I'm not familiar with the session up to that point. It's very difficult for me to hear something, you know. Just as the my first exposure to something is listening to a playback. Uh, My presumption is that it that's the way it's all supposed to sound, you know. Mm -hmm. Like I, when I hear something that someone else has done in another studio and brings it in, and they start playing it back. My first instinct is not to try to find things to improve. My first instinct is to try to appreciate it as a, a finished product. Like, oh, that's that's what it's meant to sound like.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so I'm I'm crippled if I don't have the band in the studio with me, telling me precisely moment by moment what they like and what they don't like and what their ambitions are and what their expectations are.
0: Well, uh, electrical is certainly a nice place to be a band and be hanging out with you. Um, it's a fun place to be in the studio working on a mix or, or recording. Um, tell us about the monitors that you listen to there in, in Studio A.
1: The big soffit-mounted monitors are Westlake BBSMs. Um, they're kind of an old-school design. By old-school, I mean sort of 80s design. Um, in that they're symmetrical three-way, um, they're they're bi-amplified at the moment. Um, they can be tri-amplified, but the tweeter doesn't get that much energy through the crossover. So, I, I think bi-amplifying is fine. Um, and we have them bi-am. The amplifiers we're using are um, a Macintosh twenty-two uh, fifty, and a Macintosh two fifty. Um, so they're they they're not. Pumping loud, but they're loud enough for almost all circumstances here. Um, I really like the sound of those Macintosh amplifiers. They're, you know, they're. I've I've worked yeah. with some amplifiers that sound in some studios where the monitors sound great at sort of medium volume, but if the volume gets up above a certain point, you just feel like you're like it's punishing, you know. Right. And uh, and then when you bring the volume down, I feel like there's. Uh, a poor control over the speakers at lower volumes with some amplifiers. So, like some amplifiers, very definitely have a sweet spot where if they're dro- delivering a certain amount of current, then they're controlling the speakers well and everything sounds good. Above or below that, they don't sound that great. And the Macintoshes seem basically immune to those kind of effects. Like whether it's quiet or loud, I feel like the sound quality from the speakers is very, very, very close. Um, on the near-field monitors, I'm using B&W 805s. Um, these are the Matrix series, which is an earlier um, model. Like they, The ones that they make now, I think, are they make a whole range of them in that. When I say 805, that's the b designation for that size of speaker. Um, the 800 series is available in several different sizes, and the 805 size is the size we use for near-fields. Um, and the, the current 805 size B&W speakers, they make a, a whole range of them. Um, I think those, the Nautilus is the bottom end of the range, and then they get fancier and more expensive as you go up from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I have listened to those speakers, and I think they sound good. I still prefer from familiarity working on the Matrix series. Um, the And those are powered, I think those are powered by a Hafler 500 at the moment. I'm not sure. I, I'd have to go downstairs and look in the rack, and I'm not going to. <laughs>
0: um, well, you, you mentioned a good point. You talked about, you know, listening to the speakers loud, listening to them quiet. Um, what comments would you like to make about, you know, appropriate mixing volume? How do you like to listen while you're working and mixing in the studio? When do you listen loud? When do you listen quiet?
1: I tend to start... At a sort of conversational volume, that is a volume where if anyone in the room has an observation and they speak up, that I'll be able to hear what they say. Um, uh, I know some people tend to mix at a consistent volume, and and they have a, a sort of a target of something, you know, like I don't know, like 85 dB or something like that, where there's mm-hmm. a target volume that they're listening to. Things I, I don't have anything calibrated like that. I just, I like to be listening at a volume where if someone says something in the room, I won't be deaf to their comment, you know?
0: Right. Um, yeah. Obviously, if, if you got a band sitting there with you, they're going to be jumping in uh, maybe often. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Ideally, like I'm. I try to make it clear with the bands that I'm working with that there's never a bad time to say something like I could have the bass drum soloed up and I could be fucking around with some nerdy thing of mine where I'm trying to you know, fine tune the attack component or whatever. And they have a comment about the backing vocal. It's not a bad time to you know, to to bring that up while I'm working on something else. There's, it, you know, my job is to make sure that I hear all of their comments and take actions on them. So uh, I don't want anyone to ever feel that it's inappropriate to say something to me or that, you know, that they need to wait for a quiet moment to get a comment in. I I, I want people, I want everyone in the band to be sort of actively shaping the sound of their record to their liking you know um, i feel best about a mix when everyone who has concerns about it has had those concerns addressed and they're satisfied and also i feel like it's an accurate and flattering representation of what the band were doing that you know that i have heard from the beginning of the session
0: what have you learned uh, from your experiences about helping a band navigate, you know, you know, mixed comments when they seem to be conflicting from different members of the band?
1: Yeah, that's an almost entirely political issue within the band, and I make it clear that I'm not a member of the band, and that my opinions on things, uh, you know, decisions that are being made about the music, my opinion should carry less weight than the, the opinions of people who are living and breathing this music and have been for years, you know? Um, so my opinions about something regarding the mix or the, or the music, my opinions are, are are always subordinate to the band. And more importantly, it's not always the case that I will even have an opinion. Like, there might be two perfectly suitable guitar tones that a guy is using is trying to choose between for his guitar solo Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and I it's it's extremely likely that I won't have a preference as a listener uh and or you know there may be an arrangement decision like should the backing vocal come in here or should it come in the second chorus and I'm happy to play those things as a demonstration so that they can hear what the difference is and make a decision. But it's extremely likely that I won't have an opinion about which one is, which one of those things is better.
0: Yeah.
1: So, um, and it, once in a while people are taken aback by that. Like somebody will, will say, you know, like, what do you think? And I'll say, I, I, I don't have an opinion about that because that's such a rare thing to hear in the studio. It's so it's rare for someone not to, to be willing to, to voice an opinion about something. Um, and I feel like that's one of the distinctive aspects of um, working on a record with a respectful engineer is that the engineer makes it clear that the record is yours and that you have, the, the, you have, you have all the tools that are necessary to make the decisions. Uh, and I hope that people leave here feeling more confident in their decision-making because they end up satisfied after a process where they have made all of the decisions for themselves.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I find it's really important to empower the artists, the band, you know, the the musicians that you're working with to just feel like they're making their record to the best, you know, that they they can. Um, Let me ask you another question about, for those of us that might be Having a record in the computer, but we're mm-hmm. you know we have an opportunity to mix it in a uh, console setting like yours. Yeah, um, are there any is there any advice for having appropriate levels on a session in Pro Tools? Um, and should we record at different levels if we're going to mix on a console versus if we're going to mix in the computer? Maybe that's unfair if you're not making well. Digitally. No, I mean
1: there is a practical consideration, which is the the. You know, you have essentially infinite headroom inside a computer. If something is getting too loud, you just lower the level, and then you can tack on more. You know, um, so the 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 real issue is the interface moment where it comes out of the where it comes out of the computer and through an interface, and that interfaces with console console in the analog in the real world. You know, um, so the important settings there are it, that you. Your op- nominal zero level on the console represents zero dB VU. Uh, that zero dB VU uh, represents a certain electrical level, which is plus four dB U, right? So mm-hmm. the interface should be set such that a normal signal level for a, 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 a sound in the middle of the range of your... Computer's session does not exceed that level. So, if there are occasional rare transients that spike up into the red, that's fine. Um, but, you know, you, you don't, you want to sort of, it, as, as a target, you want to have the, the interface set so that things are hitting the console at a normal nominal level that is, like, at or below zero dBVU on the console, that is, at or below plus four dBU signal level. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How that relates to full scale is a, a peak issue. So if it's a, like a, a smoothly modulated signal that doesn't have a lot of peak energy, like a bass guitar with a compressor on it, for example, um, that will probably be rock solid right around zero VU on the console, right around plus four DBU at the output. Right. If it's something like a snare drum, then the VU level is going to be extremely low relative to the peak level so the you want to decide what the headroom characteristics of the console will allow like let's say your like our console is quite comfortable with 15 16 dB of headroom above the 0 dB the 0 VU nominal level for peak signals
0: mm-hmm.
1: there are some consoles that don't have that much headroom there are some consoles where if you're regularly going to plus 12 or plus 13 you're going to be clipping some part of the system or you'll have no headroom for gain adjustments inside the desk so it's often the case on a on a per channel or on a per sound basis that you need to adjust the level of the signal as it sees the converter so that the converted level stays within the nominal operating range of the desk mm-hmm. uh, So, And if you have no experience with an analog desk, you might think it's normal for all the meters to be lighting up all red all the time and all the peak lights to be on all the time. You might think that's normal, Um, but that kind of ensures that you're going to have a bad day if your system is set up in such a way that you're you're always exceeding the headroom capability of the desk.
0: So if you are mixing from uh, a Pro Tools into a desk, then you might begin by just simply adjusting the output levels of all your tracks so that they're sort of hitting the appropriate um, you know, zero dBVU level of the desk before you begin mixing?
1: So if you're looking for a default, like something that you can do sort of defensively to make sure that your session will interface well with an analog console, um, if you set your uh, output converters, that is your analog interface, if you set that so that your zero dB full-scale signal inside the, your DAW, if that when that comes out of the of the converter that that corresponds to let's say uh, plus fifteen, uh, then that would be good for a high headroom console. Plus twelve would be good for a medium headroom console, or a low headroom console. Uh, and that would be that those are reasonable targets, like somewhere between plus 12 and plus 15 for a full scale signal. Now, you shouldn't have very many signals that are full scale. So most of your stuff, most of your audio will come within a normal range if your full scale is at plus 12 to plus, two, plus 15.
0: Now, I will comment, I'll, I'll I'll take a guess here. One of the things that I think is really special about your work is that the drums are always treated with a great deal of respect. You know, it's like the the snares seem to punch through a gigantic wall mm-hmm. of guitars. Um I say wall of guitars. It might actually only be two at a time or something, but but yeah. you know there'll be a big thick level of distortion mm-hmm. and I I suspect that that has to do with you being very very careful about not accidentally clipping off and chopping off transient peaks.
1: Yeah, I do I do treat the signals with respect sort of there's a there's a kind of a mythology about analog recording that the tape compressing or saturating or distorting is what makes analog recording sound good and i think that that's an insult to all of the very careful analog engineers that made all these great sounding records to presume that they were in a failure mode when their record sounded good, you know. <laughs> uh, if if I if I notice that I'm saturating the tape or that there's a compression effect or that I'm losing brightness from an over bias effect or if I'm getting any clipping of transients, if I'm if I notice any of that happening, I stop and fix it. And I think that's true of any competent analog engineer. Um, but it, as regards drums specifically, uh, I think. They are the most difficult task that regularly confronts a recording engineer, that is getting an accurate representation of a drum kit, just because a drum kit is such a complex system. You know, it's not one instrument, it's a whole family of instruments that the the person playing them has a, a physical relationship with the playing, such that he reaches his hand out in a certain direction and he hits the same thing every time. So that sound needs to come back in a familiar way because he's going to have a very strong sense memory of that experience. And so, yeah, recording the drums is, is the most, technically the most demanding aspect I think of, of recording a, a, a complete session. There are other sort of emotionally demanding aspects that is if, you know, maintaining a, um, comfort level for a singer, for example, because um, s- the singing voice on a record is the only thing on the record that is actually a person. You know, mm-hmm. if I'm playing guitar, that's not me. That's the sound of my guitar and my amplifier, and I, I'm disembodied from that somewhat. But if I'm speaking or singing on a record, well, that's my actual voice. That's what you would hear if we met in the grocery store. That's you know, that's what you would hear. And, and so there's a very personal relationship with the recorded sound of a voice. and I want to make sure on an emotional level that everyone is you know satisfied and feels like like they like they've been respected and that, they're, that they're, their self-image and that they're, the way that they want to be presented has been respected. But um, things like drums and guitars and other instruments, there's a kind of a disembodiment there which allows for a little bit of emotional distance. And it's, you know, so it's maybe a less fragile thing. Mm -hmm. But from a technical standpoint, I definitely think recording drums accurately is the most demanding thing.
0: Awesome. Well, um, we'll take a break now for just a quick second. Uh, Rockstars, reminder that we'll have links to everything we're talking about in the show notes. If you're on your mobile device, just click through. If you're on the website, rsrockstars.com, find the the blog post there with Steve Albini. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, please remember to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell so you don't miss our next podcast episode. We'll see you in just a minute for the jam session. a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. OWC If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mic's in Riga, Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique golden drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting colorations and distortions. Make sure to check out the Vintage Series V67 and V11 with Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a classic, expensive vintage sound to your studio for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, you can use the coupon code ROCKSTAR to get 50% off their Vintage Series microphone i got one you're hearing my voice right now on the v67 wouldn't it feel great to have one of these in your studio go to jzmike.com or click the link in the show notes below hey rock stars we're back now for the jam session my guest today is steve albini joining us from electrical audio in chicago steve are you ready
1: to jam sure i don't know what that means i've never jammed before it's
0: all right i think that was the same answer you had last time we talked And I'm not 100% sure what it means either other than to demarcate the second half of the show here. Okay. (laughs) Right. Let's talk a little bit more about drums. Um, When you get to the stage of mixing, um, when you're on the desk and you're laying out your drums and you're trying to get things to sound how you want, uh, maybe they already sound that way. Hmm. But talk to us about some of the things you're likely to do. Uh, First of all, what are some typical, you know, drum elements that might be laid out on the desk track-wise, instrument-wise, and and treatment-wise?
1: Generally speaking, the drum kit's consistent throughout a session. If it's a continuous session, like the drummer, you may swap elements out, like you might swap the bass drum pedal or swap the snare drum or add a second floor tom or something like that. But generally speaking, things are pretty consistent. I'd say about 60% or 70% of the sessions that I do are on 16-track tape as opposed to 24-track. So there are there are fewer elements to contend with there. Um, and typically on a, the drum portion of a 16-track session will be six to eight channels. If it's eight channels, there'll be typically one track for the bass drum, one track for the snare drum, a stereo track either for two toms or for a group of toms, um, a stereo uh, cymbal track, which will typically be an, either an overhead mic, or an overhead stereo mic, or an overhead mic plus a front of kit stereo mic, um, and then there'll be a stereo ambient recording track, and that's just the room sound as a, as an outrigger for the rest of the session. Um, if the there are some sessions where the ambient sound is not a critical component of the drums, like the, if if the drums are meant to be a very dry sound, mm-hmm. um, then that. And then typically the drums will be recorded in a very dry room in one of the isolation rooms, uh, and so there won't be an ambient pair separate from the rest of the drum kit in that regard. Uh, and that's and so in that case there would be six tracks dedicated to the drums. If it's a more ambient recording, but they and they wanted to preserve this 16-track setup, but they they wanted some ambient character, then the ambient um, signal and the overhead signal. Uh, the symbol signal would be bus together, so that you'd have a stereo pair that would be the overhead mics plus the ambient microphones. Okay. And typically, the the if I'm going to do processing on any of those things, that is, if I'm going to do uh, peak limiting on the overheads, for example, it's a very very common thing for me. Is I'll I'll use a peak limiter on the overhead mics to prevent the snare drum from overwhelming the rest of the sound of the drum kit in the overheads. Um, so I'll use a stereo peak limiter on the overheads. That'll typically be done on the recording side. That is prior to the prior to it being recording, recorded to tape, I will adjust and tune uh, a peak limiter so that it's controlling the sound of the snare drum and the overheads before it gets recorded. Um, in a digital session, people tend not to do as much processing prior to recording. Um, so they would tend to put up the overhead mics and record them flat. And then they would have to, you know, as a separate exercise, they would end up using dynamic control on those uh, in the mixing stage. Uh, I prefer to take care of that stuff on the way in so that it's one less thing that I have to think of. It's another set of patch cables. I don't have to babysit. It's another, uh, another adjustment that I don't have to think about because it's already been done for me.
0: Um, Do you find that generally speaking, the things that you might do processing-wise to a drum set are um, less than what you see people doing around you in the digital world. Do you feel? Do you find people just doing way too much to stuff in the digital domain?
1: Yes, but that's not not exclusive to drums. That's in every aspect of a digital session. There is a drop-down menu to allow you to do, you know, myriad things to every single sound. And just because it's so convenient to try things and audition things, people end up using more processing and doing more fiddling with the sounds. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that that's a character flaw. I think that is a feature and a design aspect of a digital system that people are just naturally taking advantage of. In a digital system, the flexibility and the power of the processing tools is the main advantage Uh, that one system has over another. Like, if you have, you know, more plugins available, then you can do more things to the sound and that you have a broader palette. Uh, That presupposes that you're going to be doing things to the sound. In the analog world, you have a complement of equipment that you hope will be useful in many circumstances. And then when you discover a problem, you choose an avenue to correct the problem. In the digital world, you can think more in terms of an idealized sound. Like, what would what would this sound be in an ideal world? And let me go through the menu of options I have to try to um, achieve this idealized sound. Um, so there there are two fundamentally different approaches to sound and and recording. And I I don't think that there is that much in the analog domain that that really correlates on a sort of one by one to one basis with the digital domain like yeah. for example in in the analog domain you may do a num- a couple of structural edits in a song like you may use the intro from take 1 and the first half from take 2 and the end of take 3 like that's a that's a that would be a fairly compre- comprehensive edit in an in the analog domain right mm-hmm. in the digital domain you'll get through that many edits in the first two bars you know <laughs> uh, and then by the end of the song there's just a, a complete mosaic of editing that's been done on on every single session and and that's that gives you a that's in a nutshell that 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 encapsulates the difference between the analog process and the digital process in the analog process you have all of these tools available to you you can do <laughs> note-by-note replacements, and you can do structural re-edits, and you can change the time basis of the music and all those things. You can do all of those things, but you only do them for cause. And because they're slightly cumbersome, you only do them when necessary. Yeah. In the digital domain, you, it's so easy to do things and undo them that, you know, you try things on a lark just to see if there's something that you like about it. And you know, and that's that's just a fundamentally different approach.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, and the trying things on a lark part of your process might be um, relegated to the rehearsal space with the band before they hit the studio. And um, if you're doing that with five people in the band, people get sick of it a little bit sooner too. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I mean, yeah. You, I I, I want to reiterate that any of the any of the things, any of the circus tricks that you can do with the sound in a computer you can execute those in the analog domain. Some of them are just, you know, quite cumbersome and you would only do them in, in extreme circumstances.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I certainly know about you that um, some of the analog tricks that would be very cumbersome for the rest of us can be done sort of um, at a magician's pace when you're uh, editing tape. <laughs> we've, seen you, we've seen you slice tape, put on some leader tape, do a punch, slice it back together, and and keep moving very quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's all just down to familiarity with the process. Like, if there's a problem that comes up in the studio, if you've only made a dozen records, you might never have seen that problem before. I just have, you know, I've I've been th- through so many iterations of the of the process that I whatever problem shows up in the studio, I'm familiar with that problem. I'm intimately familiar with that problem. That problem has been a pain in my ass for thirty years. I know every <laughs> I know in and out top to bottom what that problem entails. You know, and I could bore you with all of the specifics of it, but it's faster if I just go deal with it and come back.
0: Only thirty years. I, I might have misquoted at the beginning and said forty years. Apologies you if know, I was wrong I, about that.
1: Uh, I'll I'll do the math right now. See, I did the first sessions that I did were in the late 70s, 78 and 79. So what would that be? So yeah, that'd be fucking 40 years. Fuck <laughs> me.
0: How did that happen? Mm. Well, um, we're it glad turns out that out that I'm you're... extremely old, Lid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're also like, you still uh, rock extremely. So I don't think anything's lost here. Um, let me ask you more questions about drums. How about snare? What yeah. are you know one of the things um that I hear consistently on your records is a powerful snare drum. Yeah. Um, you know, the snare really speaks, there's space around it. What sort of processing things are common for you to uh, either use or or at least maybe consider or try yeah. for snare drums?
1: Well, one thing that I do quite quite a lot that I don't think other people do uh, as much is I tend to add, tend to concentrate on the low frequencies of the snare drum because the, the meat and the body of the snare drum, even if it's a very bright sound, even if it has a very sharp attack, the weight of the snare drum, the, the low frequency energy of the snare drum provides an energetic pulse in the music, which is, which can be perceptible even if the high frequencies are being masked by a bunch of noise. So there's a, um, a a critical thing with a snare drum is not just that it have the the crispness and the high frequency detail that allow you to hear, you know, the attack and the and the crispness of it in, in it, when it's exposed, but when it's buried under a mountain of shit, you need to be able to feel something pushing right. through. So I tend to look for a low fundamental on a snare drum. If I'm having trouble with the snare drum getting absorbed into the overall mix balance uh but making it loud making it louder doesn't seem to suit the internal balance of the drum kit or doesn't seem to suit the the sort of phrasing of the pattern then sometimes i'll look for a low fundamental in the 40 to 60 hertz region and just sweep an equalizer around there until i feel an energetic pulse coming off of the snare drum in that region. And then I'll use a couple of dB of that as a, as a a fattening element in the snare drum. Um, I don't tend to layer sounds. I know some people will layer samples or uh, a gated reverb or, um, you know, a gated noise signal, things like that. They tend, they'll layer those. I find I mean, that works in very limited circumstances when there's when there's no dynamic playing in the snare drum, you know, when it's just boom-tack, boom-tack or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, any performance of uh, performance of any subtlety whatsoever is going to have, you know, ghost notes and drags and roughs and rolls and things like that where those kinds of things just don't track well at all. Right, right. Um, so even if you have, you know, like a... Uh, a super heroic snare in the verses, when he goes to the bridge and he starts playing lighter, uh, you know, that that sound may be inappropriate and th- that sound may track poorly and you may end up with a bunch of artifacts that you then have to deal with as a separate exercise. So I tend not to do layering or triggering or things of that nature with uh, snare drum. I tend to concentrate on the elements of the sound uh, that you can imagine from the mechanical system of the snare drum. That is, the snare wires moving, the stick touching the top of the skin, the uh, sort of planar movement of the drum head defining the, the, the bass frequency of the snare drum, the, the resonant system of the heads and the shell, like creating a sustaining sound or a ringing sound. Like, if you, if you think about those elements of the sound of the snare drum, and what aspects of control you can exert in the studio to exaggerate or suppress those elements, then you'll, you, you go a long way toward figuring out what part of the snare drum you want to work on and what aspect of it and what tools you need to use.
0: Right, so it's almost like um, we might be inclined to just automatically try and use tricks that we've heard, you know, parallel compression and things mm-hmm. like that, just because the trick itself seems like it's a good choice. Well, and you're, sometimes you're it reminding, works, yeah. Yeah, well, you're also reminding us to consider, like, well, what the hell part of the snare are you wanting to hear more of, and why are you doing that to get it?
1: Yeah, so for example, um, I'll just if I just use those categories that I just described, like the stick attack, the physical attack of the stick onto the head tends to generate a spike in the frequency response, uh, in the... Sp- Frequency spectrum it tends to generate a spike in the region of five to seven kilohertz. Like it does, sort of doesn't matter what size the drum is, what type of stick he's using, uh, uh, whether it's you know light tapping or full-on whacking. The spike tends to be evident in that region. So if what you're missing is the articulation, the definition of those. Of that instant, that is the the precise instant of the stick hitting the the skin. Then you can sometimes boost in that region to 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 bring that up. The crunch of the wires hitting the bottom head that's another bright element of the snare drum, but it's significantly lower in the spectrum. So like that, the the crispy aspect of the snares tends to be lower than that, like six to three to six kilohertz. So if, you, if you're if you trying to exaggerate or bring definition out to the, the crunching sound of the snare strainer, then you might sweep a frequency slightly lower than that, right? Mm-hmm. If what you're trying to exaggerate is the fundamental, that is the initial tone that the drum heads um, have described, then that's typically going to be... Uh, a low frequency, that's that low frequency impact that I was talking about. Like the fun the low fundamental might be down in the forty to fifty hertz re- region. Like if you look at a spectrograph, you'll see significant energy from a snare drum down in that in that low region. and that and you can use that to exaggerate the sort of stomping or marching quality of of a drum. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about the sustaining, ringing resonance, the overtones, and the ringing and the and the the sustaining sound that's a that is a product of the system of the heads and the shell, uh, sort of carrying on after you have finished playing, that's often a mid-range frequency, like somewhere in in the region of 500 to 1200 hertz. That that that's where you'll find those rings and overtones. So if that ring is starting to is irritating, then you'll probably want to notch in that region. If you if you find that you want to exaggerate that sort of sustaining quality, then you'll probably want to put in a boost in those regions. And you can also use a, a compressor or a limiter with a frequency selective component. And you can so you can control that that aspect. Like if if the the ring sounds good, but it, there are certain times where it seems excessive. Then you can use a frequency selective compressor to listen for that sustaining ring and and make sure that it doesn't exceed what you think is acceptable.
0: Um, now I noticed that you conspicuously didn't mention 200 to 250 hertz, which is funny because I always feel like that's a that's a sort of a, a snare body range. Yeah, that's uh, that's worth considering, but maybe maybe you didn't mention it because it's already there most of the time. Yeah,
1: I mean, presuming that there is some aspect of the snare that's at the right level, like you can adjust the other stuff around it. But yeah, there's a there is a occasionally you'll find like a two hundred to four hundred hertz will be the sort of throaty mid range of the snare drum. Um. So yeah, I mean that's how I would describe that. But I, I, I was just speaking in terms of the mechanical system of the. You know, the stick hitting the head, the snare wires flapping against the bottom head, the two heads moving with an initial percussive impact, and then the system of the shell and the heads ringing on as an after ring. Like so that's nice. That's the sort of spectrum I was trying to describe.
0: I like the slow motion description of a snare drum there. <laughs> <laughs> um well, now, um any comments you want to make about Tom's? Um, are there some uh, I mean, I, I imagine some of those things are very similar are there some usual pain points in, in getting the toms to work well in a mix?
1: Yeah. A couple of things that, that um, I, I tend to have toms mixed a bit louder than some of my uh, cohort. <clears throat> and that's typically because when the, the toms are playing, it's intended to be a bit of an accent. So I mm-hmm. tend to have them fairly high in the mix and just in terms of as an audible element, but also I quite like the overtones and the ringing that the the toms create as a resonant system when you're playing the rest of the drum kit. So, for example, when the drummer hits the bass drum and you can hear the toms singing and forming a little chord, uh, some people find that offensive and think that that should be suppressed and gotten rid of so that you get a clear bass drum signal with no other sort of ambient sound around it or no other unassociated sounds around it. I tend to think of those sounds as being part and parcel of the sound of the drum kit. Like one of the things that makes a drum kit sound distinctive is that the drummer has tuned it to his taste. And so when he plays the bass drum, there's a little bit of a sympathetic ring of the rest of the drum kit. And you can identify that that's Mac McNeely, for example. Uh, because his toms are tend tend to be tuned in a very specific manner, and when he plays mm-hmm. bass drum, you can hear a little ghost of this sustaining, this aura of of the sustaining toms around his bass drum, and and you can identify it as part of his his voice, his personality. You know, so I tend to like those kinds of things, and I don't concern myself too much with them. Nice. Another um, thing that oh another yeah, thing ahead. that sort of rides along with the toms though is the bleed on the cymbals, the bleed on the tom mics from the cymbals. Um I've found that by using uh condenser microphones on the toms the off-axis frequ- frequency response of the of the those mics tends to be better than if I'm using dynamic mics on the toms. I know that quite a lot of my peers use dynamic mics on the toms because they have a lot more mid-range impact and they the off-axis sound might be slightly duller so there may be in some instances there might be less crosstalk with the other the rest of the drum kit but i find that the bleed on the tom tracks of the off-axis sound from dynamic mics is uglier and more peaky than the similar amount of bleed from a condenser microphone where the off-axis sound is going to be a little bit smoother so i find that the cymbal bleed on the tom mics is less of a problem less something that needs to be concerned i need to be concerned with than uh, if the same session was done with dynamic mics. If the same session was done with dynamic mics, the cymbal bleed might be so piercing and so ugly that I would feel compelled to put a gate or an expander on the tom uh, to to minimize it. And then you lose that sympathetic resonance that I was talking about Mm -hmm. from the other bit. And also you have to spend your energy fine-tuning that gate or that (laughs) expander so that it doesn't miss trigger and you don't get chatter and yada yada
0: yeah and it almost never ends up exactly where you wished it would end up
1: i have seen in extreme cases i have seen some engineers spot erase the the tom tracks in between tom fills so that there was not you know silence on the tape until the tom fills that that seems like an extreme measure but i can under totally understand why someone would do it
0: well i like your suggestion of just trying to get it right at the recording stage and I remember working with you um, using the Josephson mics on the Toms. And yep. for my ear, those are still the best sounding Tom mics I've ever heard.
1: Yeah, I've come to rely on those. I travel with them. When I have to go elsewhere to work on a session, I do tend to bring a, a small parcel of those with me.
0: Um, can we shout out the name, the model number yes. of those again?
1: The Josephson E22 is the model number. Um, it's a side address small diaphragm condenser microphone. Uh, there, I have recently found that other... Other companies have started to adopt the side-firing uh, uh, aspect of the Josephson mics. I, I don't know if it's in direct competition or if it's just because it was an obvious need. And so um, Audio-Technica, for example, makes a side-firing small <clears throat> condenser. I think it's called the 450. I'm not sure about that. Um, and then the you can get a swivel joint from Octava for their um, MK012 microphones. Yeah you can get a little swivel joint that allows you to rotate the capsule to 90 degrees on those microphones. And I, I recently did a session in Mexico at a studio that had a bunch of these Octava mics and they had those swivel dealies on them. And uh, in comparison with the Josephson's that I brought with me, they were quite good. I still think I slightly preferred the Josephson's but I felt, felt like the Octava's were a perfectly usable alternative.
0: Now were these the Octavas that had the Octava mod done to them or were they just the uh, the stock ones as far as I you don't remember?
1: know. My presumption is that they would they were whatever was available at the guitar store in this town in Mexico.
0: Okay, cool, right on This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio, and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master bundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, All right, well, let me uh, ask you one question about kick. Um, Any thoughts about stuff that is usually helpful when you're mixing a kick drum?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. Um, The attack component for a bass drum can be difficult to evaluate when you're doing a sound check because you're just listening to the drum kit by itself. And then when the band plays over it, um, you you often lose specifically the barking attack of the of the bass drum. I often use a separate microphone dangling by the bass drum beater to use as an attack element of the bass drum sound. And if that microphone has been recorded separately, which is what I would do on a 24-track session, for example, then I found that rebalancing that against the conventional bass drum microphone can give a little bit of definition, a little bit of edge to the bass drum without having to carve the sound up with EQ. Um, I found EQ to be particularly destructive on a bass drum because the bass drum microphones tend to be very specific. That is, they tend to be designed for high sound pressure and designed for ruggedness and designed for low-frequency response, which means that the off-axis sound, that is the bleed from the rest of the drum kit getting into that microphone, is typically gonna be pretty terrible sounding. Mm -hmm. So if you're exaggerating the attack element of the bass drum that is brightening that microphone up, then you're going to be exaggerating what is the ugliest depiction of the rest of the drum kit. So I've found that bass drum microphones, in particular, don't suffer being equalized that well. So if I prefer to deal with those sound to, to deal with those problems by using an, a, an auxiliary microphone that has more of an attack component, if the session has already been recorded and you're and you have a single bass drum signal and you need to exaggerate the attack, then you don't really have much by way of options other than you know uh, dialing in an equalizer. There is one option which you can consider. And that is to make a parallel channel that is um, heavily gated using a gate that creates a, a glitching artifact, like a Drummer, for example. The Drummer DS-201 is a, a sort of a studio standard drum gate, but it does create a slight spike at, uh, on its opening. Mm-hmm. And if you have a separate channel of this gated signal with that spike on it, then you can feather a small amount of that spike in to slightly exaggerate the attack of the bass drum without screwing up the sound of the bass drum too much.
0: Nice, I like the attack, um, the sound of a gate opening and popping sometimes if it sits in the track just right.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm, what I'm uh, advising, is it rather than gating the bass drum and having that sound there, whether you like it or not, you can have it on a separate tr- channel and just fade it in until you feel like the attack element is helping.
0: Cool. Um, all right. Well, let me uh, jump to the bass guitar. Um, are there any things you want to talk about as far as the mixing stage um, or or stuff that needed, you know, that you're not doing at the mixing stage because you did it at the recording stage to get yeah. the bass to sound great?
1: Well, one thing, one thing that's uh, pretty common uh, is that people will record a direct signal of the bass uh, along with an amplifier signal. And if you bring those, just bring those two channels up next to each other or superimposed on each other, there's going to be um, a phase misalignment between those signals. That is the, the direct signal is gonna get to the tape faster than the microphone signal because the microphone has to wait for the speaker to move, has to wait for the air to compress and decompress and tra- the sound to travel the physical distance from the speaker to the microphone and then the microphone diaphragm has to move and then that has to create compliance with the diaphragm and the coil and the coil has to generate the electrical signal and then you have a signal that you know so it goes down the wire at sort of speed of light but all of that that i've just described there that whole system that's going to induce a slight lag in the arrival time of the microphone signal and if you on a on a workstation, for example, this is pretty easy. If you just br- you can just bring up the two signals side by side and slide the direct signal back in time, later in time, so that it arrives and stays in phase with the microphone signal. It's, it arrives at the same time and stays in phase with the microphone signal. Mm-hmm. Um, in the analog domain, uh, you'll have to use a a de- delay network of some kind. The the problem is that most delays that are dedicated as delays are parts of a multifunction device. Most of those devices have an integral of several milliseconds as a minimum. So you won't be able to delay the signal by as little as a few microseconds. Uh, there are a couple of workarounds for that. And, and the, I've found that the, if the microphone is close to the speaker, then the the delay will be on the order of a few microseconds, like 20 to 50 microseconds. Um, if the microphone is away from the speaker, then it can be a millisecond or more. But typically, bass guitar microphones are quite close to the speaker because you want to take advantage of the proximity effect of the microphone. To, What's, to,
0: what, uh, sorry, Steve, let me ask this question. Um, is it um, about a foot is a, a micro a millisecond?
1: Very for, roughly, for speed yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, I mean... It, the precise speed of sound varies with altitude and humidity and air pre- local air pressure, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. If you're guessing at one foot per millisecond, you'll be close.
0: But it's a good ballpark. Yeah, okay, yeah. thanks.
1: So if you imagine that the microphone for the bass guitar is less than a foot away from the speaker, which is nom- normally the case, then you're going to be dealing with a delay interval of less than a millisecond. And very few outboard delays can provide a delay interval of that of that small of an increment. Old school analog delay lines, um, like the Eventide um, instant flanger, instant phaser, things like that, Um, or the Countryman analog delay line, or there was a company called Loft that made an analog delay line. There was uh, the Clark Technique made an analog alignment delay. Mm -hmm. These analog delay lines can get very, 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 very short intervals, like they can get down into the microsecond region. So if you have one of those devices, you can use that one of those to delay the direct signal until it comes in alignment with the microphone signal. And you can either look at the signal on an oscilloscope and do it, you know, using visual parity. but I, I, I recommend doing it by ear so that you can train yourself to hear the difference.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so if you move the signal by, by ear you can hear when it comes into alignment and that the base frequencies are most supported
0: um have you had experience with the little labs ibp and and you know phase alignment i don't know if there are alternatives to that too but i've always been curious
1: yeah the, inter- the that ibp treatment. device is a an all-pass uh, delay it's an all-pass filter network that Creates a delay, and that is precisely what I'm describing. It does it delays the direct signal, so that it brings the signal more closely into alignment. The problem with using that device is that it's a it's a, a, a floor device, like it sits on the floor out in the studio, and the where you would need to be to operate that device to adjust it would be inside the control room. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so if you okay. had if you Built a network so that you could have that device in the control room with you and adjusting it by ear. Great. No problem. Um, but uh, if you're looking for uh, like a just a plug-in set and forget it sort of a system, um, you if you once you have the little labs box calibrated for a specific microphone setup, then it would probably be pretty consistent from then on. Mm-hmm. So you can right. set it once and then make sure you always put the mic in the same place.
0: All right, cool. well, thanks for that awesome explainer on on aligning that stuff. Um, one I guess one other question to that. If you're looking at a recording of a DI and a microphone in Pro Tools, you know, and you're seeing some of the waveforms, I don't know if those waveforms you see look similar to what you might see on a scope, and if there's any indicators that help you know what the the you know the parts are that you want to line up.
1: yeah, the the primary thing that you want to do is find a sustaining note. Or have the bass player in a soundcheck environment, you would just have the bass player play a sustaining note uh, so that you can see a repetitive waveform and make sure that you're create that you're staying in alignment with a repetitive waveform. If he's okay. just, you know, if he's just doing fake flea finger slapping and stuff, you're never going to be able to find a, a signal that looks similar enough on the direct and the microphone to be able to calibrate it that way visually. You can uh, see by ear, but you wouldn't be able to find that that caliber, you wouldn't be able to find that alignment visually, um, without having a sort of a simple sustaining note to so that you have a repetitive waveform.
0: Okay. Um, if the base amp signal is quite distorted, does that sort of spoil the, the repetitive
1: waveform at all? Only in extreme cases, but even then you could just have him play lightly for a, a couple of minutes or, you know, Turn okay. the distortion off for a couple of minutes and then get the thing calibrated and put it back. You know.
0: All right. Very cool. All right. Now, let's say we've recorded this and we've lined up our DI and our amp. What what other things might you explore as far as the mixing stage treatments of the bass or EQing or any of that kind of stuff?
1: The main consideration with the low frequency stuff is that, that um, especially if you're working in a control room that doesn't have great monitoring, you know, a lot of people are working on headphones or working on near field monitors in a, in a semi-professional environment. And the, the base monitoring in an environment like that is going to be very, very, very poor. That is, it's going to be nonlinear and it's going to be irregular and different parts of the room are going to sound different. So my advice would be to do as little manipulation of low frequency energy as you can stand. If you are in an environment with a poor, that has poorly controlled low end do not mess with the low end. You're more likely to cause a problem than you are to solve a problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you if you have a signal where you know that the low frequency component is not important, like let's say you have a high pixie-ish backing vocal, for example, and you just want to f- high pass it to remove any rumbling components or footfall or that sort of thing, that's fine, totally fine. Um, but if you're listening to the bass guitar and the bass guitar is, and it's a, let's say it's a musical setting where the bass is detuned even, so you're dealing with frequencies down in the 30 hertz region, uh, and you're listening to it on monitors that are the size of a carton of milk, there's just no chance that you're going to be hearing low frequencies accurately enough to evaluate that stuff. So my advice would be to leave it alone. Like, don't mess with anything below about 100 hertz unless you're in an environment where you can hear the low frequencies accurately just presume that the microphone is doing its job and that you know the low frequency stuff may there may be problems there but you're more likely to create a problem than you are to solve one if you try to deal with it in a poor monitoring environment
0: okay that's great advice so um but this this doesn't mean that we can't still try and make uh, balance judgment calls between the kick and the bass and stuff like that. though. No. It- and
1: the, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's part of your job. And, but, and I think that that all that stuff varies from session to session. Like some, I've worked with some sessions where the, you know, where on a sort of a Metallica basis, just the implication of a bassist is enough, you know? Uh, and I've worked on some sessions where, uh, you know, it, where the bass is heavier than dub reggae and you know it's like the most important thing in the band yeah so uh it it, all of that stuff that really depends on the kind of music and the kind of you know the internal or logic of the of the band that you're working with at the moment so I, i tend to i tend to interrogate those decisions rather than try to find something that suits me. I tend to bring that stuff up in conversation before I lift the fader like do you guys like the bass to be pretty loud, you know, or you do you have a you know, do you have a perspective on how much work the bass should be doing, you know, you, normally you can intuit that stuff over the course of the session, but if it's a, a decision that you're making at the last minute and mixing, then I think it's important to just have those conversations. Oh, I know sure, that there okay. was a rule of thumb that the engineers at Abbey Road used which was they um they mixed the balance of the music such that it registered at minus 3 i think on the VU like the average the, the VU meters averaged at minus 3 and then they brought the bass guitar up until the the average was at nominal 0
0: Oh, cool! So the bass is sort of adding three three dB of energy.
1: Yeah, I don't know how true that is. I don't know if that's apocryphal, but I I've re- read that in more than one place as a, a as a quote or as a, uh, a paraphrase of the uh, the sort of standard level of you know how to find the level for the bass guitar in a pop song. You know, nice. from the Abbey Road engineers.
0: Well, I think that's a great tip because it just gives us something to try in the studio anyway, and that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I know you, we're, we're running out of time here. Um, let me see if I can ask you a couple of quick questions. Um, let's talk about guitars for a moment. What are some things that might be useful to know about at the mixing stage for guitars? Um, I'm trying to think of stuff that we might be inclined to do. We might be inclined to EQ or compress or yeah. widen guitars somehow. Any, any thoughts in that world?
1: I tend not to have guitars panned extremely wide. That is, if there's a, if there are two guitars in the band, I tend not to have one strictly in one speaker and the other strictly in another. Often I will have recorded the guitar with something of a stereo image where there will be two microphones or more microphones on the cabinet, or there may even be two amplifiers in play. Mm-hmm. In which case then I could, you could have one amplifier in the far left and one dead center, for example, for one guitar player and the same arrangement on the right side for the other guitar player. That way you have something of a stereo image for each guitar. They each sort of have dominion over one half of the stereo spectrum, but there's still something of a stereo image for each guitar. Um, Nice. Another thing I've noticed is that um, uh, there is a a lot of kind of pro forma doubling of guitar parts. Um, I think that's that's advice that was handed out kind of capriciously in guitar magazines. And in even in recording schools is that, you know, guitar parts sound better doubled, something like that. And, uh, if a band wants to double their guitar parts, I don't have any objection with it. Um, my preference is to use a different guitar to do the second guitar part. If it's going to be a strict double, that is if it's going to be playing the same part as the first guitar, um, I tend to, I tend to think it sounds better. By that I mean it's more discernible as two guitars, mm-hmm. and it's less muddy and, and generally speaking, has a more full-bodied sound. If you're using a different guitar, even if the guitars are essentially identical, in you know, like if you have two Telecasters from the same year, just the very minor intonation differences between them. The difference in the aging of the strings, the liveliness of the pickups, the exact placement of the bridge, all of those things make for small differences in the overtones and in the uh in the harmonic sequence on each guitar, which allows you to resolve them as a listener, as different voices. Whereas if you have the same thing over the top of itself, it tends to get quite muddy. It, um oh, if, and if it's it, not yeah, and if it's not possible, that is if there are two guitars and they sound essentially identical and they were two takes of the same guitar playing the same part. um, I tend, I tend to try to find the minimal amount of doubling that accomplishes whatever the aesthetic goal is uh, rather than just by default, have them at the same volume because that, that to me maximizes the sort of confusing or muddying effect.
0: Right. Any preference about using the same guitar amp or different amps?
1: I find that that makes much less of a difference than okay. swapping the guitar out. Like if you have exactly the same amplifier with two different guitars, they will sound different enough that your ear easily picks them apart. If you use the same guitar with two radically different amplifiers, the overtone series still tends to blend and and get muddy. Like you you still tend to get that sort of dirtying or muddying effect of the same guitar over itself.
0: Any tricks where um, a band has brought you a single guitar and you know, you've know you been asked to widen it that you enjoyed using in the studio? That yeah, makes? there's only
1: there are only so many things that you can do. You can use a delay effect. Um, and I found that if you have a multi-tap delay that has several different delays, you can get away with a significantly lower overall volume of that effect. In, in order to achieve the same sort of richness. Like if you, if you just have a single delay, the single delay ends up needing to be quite loud in order for your ear to be able to discern it. Um, but if you have multiple delays, then those multiple delays tend to be heard as a kind of an ambience rather than as a competing sound. And you can get away with a very small amount of that and it tends to have the same sort of enlivening or enriching effect.
0: Okay, cool. Um, you got time for one more question? Sure. All right, so let's, let's jump to vocals then for a sec and just talk about, uh, you know, I imagine that you are, uh, like usual, you're trying to get the vocal to sound as right as you can yeah. at the recording stage. But you, I'm guessing that you're faced with having to do a little bit of something at the mix stage often. Yeah, um, one
1: thing that's quite common is that vocalists tend to like to hear their voices made more magical in the studio because it's, <laughs> it removes them from their sort of commonplace experience. I found that the more experienced vocalists tend to be more appreciative of their own voice in a natural state. Like people who have been singing for years, they always like the way their voice sounds, they're confident, they're, you know, terrific energetic performers. Typically for those people, they don't want a whole lot of messing around. People who haven't been that confident as vocalists, or in a lot of cases, someone is pressed into service as a vocalist in a band, like well, somebody has to sing this song, you know, uh, then those people tend to want to have their vocals um, abstracted to a degree. And, I, and there I tend to, to do the simplest thing possible. Like if, I, if a simple slap echo mixed under the vocal enlivens the vocal enough that it serves the purpose, but then that's typically fine. That's not going to compete very much with the spectrum of everything else. But if the vocal processing ends up being very elaborate, like you have many layers of doubling and you have several different reverb effects or you have pitch changing effects, then that ends up becoming so much of a feature of the sound that it becomes very difficult to hear what's going on in the music behind it.
0: Mm. So it's about sort of like setting the vocals so that it's not competing with the band, unless that's the intent. Are there any things that you've been excited about trying on your own voice lately?
1: Um, I don't sing that much and I tend to be kind of happy with how how it comes up on its own. Um, There are a few, every now and again, you'll want to do something to stylize a moment in a song. So like there's a, you know, there's a, there's a a moment in one of the songs from my band's last album where there's a a single phrase that's repeated with an echo. That's a clearly artificial echo. It's just, there's a a break in the song and there's a vocal repetition that's in sync with the music, that sort of thing. Those are little gimmicks um, that are, you know, fun and entertaining to indulge once in a while. But if you if you make a meal out of them, then people get sick of them.
0: <laughs> All right, um, uh, what was it at uh, the beginning of um Midsummer Night's Dream or something? It, where it says the appetite may so surfeit and sicken and die eating too <laughs> much of it. Um, awesome, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. I know you got another one to go to uh, right after this. Um, so just an absolute pleasure to hang out with you again and to, uh, get all this wonderful insight into making records. I hope, I hope I get to be back up in Chicago and back at electrical again sooner rather than later. I know and it's I been hope a minute. We're still here. I, know, I hope you're still there. Um, let the rock stars know how they can find you. Uh, how can they come book a session with you? How can they come make a record with you? How can they could just go follow you online and yeah, check out you, your social media or whatever.
1: Um, if you if you want to talk to us, just the easiest way to do it is to send an email. And you can email info at electricalaudio.com. All the engineers here will see that. I'll see it. You can ask any questions for anybody that you have uh, about the studio or about techniques or about technical stuff. We have a website, electricalaudio.com. If you go there, there's a description of the studio. Um, there's, you know, pictures and... Um, de- de- descriptions of all of our equipment and instruments and amplifiers and stuff. Um, and if you want to email me personally, probably the best, you know, you are you can just Google around and find my e- find my email address. But if you email the info at electricalaudio.com then I will see it like everybody else will.
0: Awesome. Well, Steve, thanks so much, man. Total pleasure hanging with you and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. All right, man. See you around the studio. Cheers. See you around. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rockstars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lyd Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.